G.K. Chesterton once said, we do not want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. You know, it can, even today, because the good news of the gospel is as relevant today as it ever was. Right? The promises for God's people are as valid today as they have ever been. The power of the church is as potent today as it has been from the beginning. And listen, the world's need for all of that is as desperate today as it has been throughout all of human history. You see, the witness of the church to the work of the gospel in our lives carries the same power to transform human souls today as it always has. So we don't look to the state of the world as a gauge for how effective we are as followers of Christ in our world today, because listen, the world we live in is fallen. It's full of sin and disbelief and doubt and fear and hatred and jealousy and wrath. Our world today looks exactly like a fallen world should. Okay, it's not our job to make the world look more like the church. No, it's our job to make the church look more like Jesus which also happens to be the way we influence this world, not by changing their behavior, but by changing ours to accurately reflect Him. And so if if we're gonna have a discussion about the effectiveness of what we're doing in the world today as Christians, then we have to look at the state of the church. We have to start by looking in the mirror, which, by the way, is what all of the epistles, the letters to the churches that make up most of the New Testament are about, as is Revelation, which was written down in order to prepare us, the church, for what is and for what is to come. And it matters because this world, as we've been learning and as we'll see again today as we continue our sermon series working our way through the book of Revelation, this world is running out of time. The curtain on this final age of the earth is closing and its only hope is the church. Of course, ultimately, we know that Jesus is our hope, but listen, the way he reaches lost people with the good news of the gospel is through us, his church which makes the state of the church not only critical to our own spiritual well-being, but critical to the eternity of a world that is lost and dying without Jesus. And again, it's not uh, not that the church had something back then that we don't have today. No, we, we carry the same message, the same promises, and the same power today as they did then. In fact, if we're being honest, with modern technology and a free society, we actually have far more opportunity today to affect and reach our world for Christ than the church has at any other time in history. So why don't we? Well, honestly, I think we've had it so good. It's been so easy to be a Christian for so long in our part of the world that we've never had to face the reality of real persecution or even death for openly professing our faith or proclaiming the gospel, which is wonderful, except for the fact that comfort often breeds complacency. And left unchallenged long enough, complacency often becomes weakness. Okay, like it or not, uh, strength is built through resistance, pressure, struggle, not comfort and complacency, right? Which is why resistance, pressure, and struggle so often accompany the proclamation of the gospel throughout scripture because look, there's no comfortable way to become all that God created you to be. It's a fact. There's no comfortable way for you to become all that God created you to be. No, following Christ will always test your mettle if you don't fold 
in the process first, uh, writing from a Roman prison in AD 62, well aware that his own death may be imminent, the Apostle Paul wrote these words to the first church he'd planted in Europe. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. Philippians 1, 21 through 23. You catch that? I mean, talk about a statement. When your choices are either life in a first century Gentile prison or a horrible death at the hands of your Roman oppressors, and yet you cannot decide which to choose because they both present such great possibilities. Talk about resolve. I mean, perspective. Talk about strength, right? This wasn't the power of positive thinking. Paul wasn't just trying to put on some brave face or to simply look on the bright side of things because from the world's perspective, there was no bright side, not based on the circumstances he was facing. Now, this was a sincerely deep sense of hopeful expectation of what was lying ahead for Paul, no matter the circumstances he was in or those facing his very near future, because Paul's strength was not rooted in what this world could offer him. His strength was rooted in what Jesus was offering him, a life in service to Christ, followed by an eternity in the presence of Christ. Right To the outside world looking in, the, the plight of the great apostle was a lost cause, and yet for Paul it was a win-win proposition. In fact, uh, there are a lot of lost causes as far as this world is concerned, and chief among them today is the church. Increasingly, the church in our culture is seen as an antiquated and irrelevant religious organization that is destined to end up on the wrong side of history for refusing to redefine the unchanging gospel in deference to the ever-changing moral sensibilities of popular culture. To much of the world today, the church has become irrelevant, and yet Jesus said that upon the proclamation of that very same unchanging gospel, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. You see, what the world sees as irrelevant, Jesus declared unstoppable. The question is, do you see yourself that way? Because that's the way Jesus sees you. And I'm telling you, seeing yourself as anything less is actually nothing more than a false perception of reality because Jesus created, called, and equipped you to shake the world around you. I mean, think about it. If he did that through 12 very imperfect, very flawed, messed up men, imagine what he could do through all of us sitting in this room if we simply believe we are who he says we are. The truth is there are a lot of Christians who get stuck, who, who stop moving forward with their lives because they have more faith in what their circumstances can do to them than in what Christ wants to do through them in those same circumstances. Listen, every great thing God ever did in someone's life in the Bible came out of impossible circumstances. In fact, those impossible circumstances were generally an indispensable part of their calling. Okay, there's no comfortable way to become all that God created you to be. There's no easy road to the heights that God has planned for your life. Climbing a mountain is hard. And there are usually obstacles all along the way. 
So look, if you're facing something truly difficult in your life, even today, even something the world would describe as a lost cause, I'm telling you, it's not wrong to acknowledge the reality of the difficulty of those circumstances. That's fine, as long as you also acknowledge the reality that God created and called and equipped you to not only face those very circumstances, but to devote yourself to serving Him in the midst of them. And you can You can because it's not our circumstances that define you or what you're able to achieve for Christ. You understand who you are is not the sum total of your circumstances. No, who you are is who God says you are. He says you're a child of God, Galatians 3.26. He says you're a friend of Jesus, John 15.15. He says you're a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. A temple where the Spirit of God lives, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He says you're the crown of His creation, Ephesians 2, 10. Completely forgiven and cleansed from all sin, 1 John 1, 9. He says you're a citizen of heaven, Philippians 3, 20. Created in the likeness of God, Ephesians 4, 24. He says you're God's messenger to the world. Acts 1.8, chosen by God. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, he says you're no longer a slave, but you are an heir of God. Galatians 4.7, set free in Christ. Galatians 5.1, he says you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1.13, greatly loved by God. Ephesians 2.4, and more than a conqueror through Christ. Romans 8.37. That's just to name a few. I try to share that list at least once a year because you need to understand if you're a Christian, your circumstances aren't meant to defeat you. They're meant to strengthen you. They're actually a part of your calling to help you become the man or woman this world needs you to be. A part of a church who isn't afraid to proclaim the gospel no matter the pressure that is brought to bear upon us. Because there's a time coming when the pressure brought to bear on the church is going to test our mettle in ways we haven't seen before. Of course, we don't know when that day will come, but we know it's coming. Whether it's in our lifetime or the next, he's calling the church to be ready, to be strong, to be resolved. Listen, so that when we are called upon, maybe to suffer, maybe even to give our lives, we can confidently stand up in that moment and say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's how the church becomes a beacon of strength and truth and light to a world that is drowning in darkness by facing whatever circumstances we find ourselves in with a resolve to proclaim the truth of the gospel come what may. So let's pick the story up where we left off last time and see what's in store for the church and what we need to do to be ready for it. Uh, We're going to pick it up right where we left off last time in the middle of chapter 11. Just to review really quick, last week, In verses 4 through 10, we saw the witnessing church proclaiming the gospel and testifying to the work of Christ uh, in their own lives to a lost world in the last days. And the whole time they're experiencing intense pressure and persecution until ultimately they're martyred for their faith. They're left dead in the streets for three and a half days while people celebrate what seems to finally be the defeat of the church. Except that God had plans otherwise. Let's read it together. Chapter 11, Revelation 11. We'll start at verse 11 and read through verse 14. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. 
And at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Again, just to review, there are three series of judgments in Revelation. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls with seven judgments in each series. And as previously discussed, each series of judgments is an extension of or an expansion of the previous judgment. So with each set of judgments, we learn more about what is happening in heaven and on earth during these last days as the intensity of the description of the judgments increases each time. And yet there are reoccurring themes throughout all of the judgments that give us clues as to the order of these end time events, even if it's not the perfect timeline that we'd all like. For instance, between the sixth and seventh seals as prophesied by Jesus in Matthew 24 and between the sixth and seventh trumpets that we find here and between the sixth and seventh bowls that we'll see in chapter 16 verse 15 we find references in all those places to and descriptions of the rapture of the church which according to the first three verses in this chapter is three and a half years after the period of tribulation begins and so for those who uh, interpret the entire tribulation is three and a half years long, which many people do, then this would represent a post-tribulation rapture of the church. For those who believe the entire tribulation to be a seven-year period based on Daniel 9, 24 through 27, which many people do, uh, then this would represent a mid-tribulation rapture of the church. The only thing we don't see represented, at least here, is a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, which is based on 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, after the description of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. And based on those passages, there are many people who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And look, although I don't see that represented here in Revelation, and although there's nothing in 1 Thessalonians actually that would contradict the idea that we will suffer the wrath of men and be spared the wrath of God, which we've, of course, seen and discussed all throughout in the previous chapters here in Revelation. So I'm just telling you, this is one case uh, where, as I've mentioned already, I would love nothing more than to find out I'm wrong. I'd be good with that. Okay, so listen, if you're a pre- tribulation uh, rapture believer, if, if you believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, I'm rooting for you, okay? I am, even if I don't agree with you. But look, uh, what we do know for certain is that there is a rapture of the church and that it's going to take place uh, and the dead in Christ will rise as the martyrs and then the rest of the church is taken up to heaven in a cloud, John says. But look, even though the rapture of the church gets all of the, the press these days, there's a much bigger question that really needs to be answered than when the church is raptured, because the answer to this question speaks to the state of the church today. And the question is, why are we so resistant to the idea that we might have to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Why are we so repelled by the idea of suffering for Jesus that we're willing to split churches over the timing of the rapture? Look, it's, it's not because we care about the actual date of the rapture, no. Christians aren't breaking fellowship with other believers because they care about some arbitrary date in the future. No, it's because the idea of having to actually endure suffering for Christ is unthinkable to many Christians today. Otherwise, why would it matter when the rapture happens? If, if we understood 
and even embraced that not only are we guaranteed to experience Christ's sufferings all throughout Scripture, but that those times of suffering are actually a part of our calling that strengthens us to be able to carry out that calling, just as we see in our story today. Listen, we wouldn't be wasting the time we've been given arguing with each other about when the rapture happens. And look, these Christians who preached the gospel under heavy persecution for three and a half years in our story back in verse three, we saw that in verse three, you understand they weren't raptured to heaven because of their faithful preaching. No, they were martyred because of their faithful preaching. The reward came later. You see, even facing persecution and death, they chose to stay and preach the truth anyway. And I'm telling you, this matters because the world needs to see a church that isn't going to check out when it's needed the most. When the world is at its worst, we need to be at our best. And I know it's daunting to think about, especially when we read about these end time events, but listen, if we are the generation to live out these last days, and I don't know that we are, but if we are, then we are the generation meant to be here when it happens. And it's not about being some kind of super Christian with a resume like the Apostle Paul. No, it's about having a willing heart to answer the call of Christ on your life no matter where that leads you, right? God is more interested in your heart than he is in your resume. Okay, God's not impressed with all the things that impress mankind. He's just, he's not. There's no amount of experience, no amount of education, no body of work or any human accomplishment that impresses God. No, what he's looking for is people with willing hearts. Right? What qualifies you to make disciples even in hardship is not what you've accomplished for Jesus. No, it's what Jesus has accomplished for you. Sharing Christ with others has nothing to do with your accomplishments or lack thereof. And yet one of the primary reasons that people give for not answering the call to make disciples to go wherever the gospel leads them is they don't feel qualified or worthy because of their own weaknesses or failures. Their, their upbringing or their current status in life, or their past life, sins they've committed, mistakes they've made, the family they were raised in, and they've spent years accumulating these feelings of shame and guilt and low self-worth to the point that they remove themselves from qualifying for any type of ministry, especially when it gets tough. Listen, once you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins and become a follower of his, your past no longer has a voice in your future. You know why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ that poured down off that cross 2,000 years ago at Calvary runs deeper than your deepest hurts and it washes away every ounce of sin and shame and guilt that we try to hold on to. Left to the devices of this world where you come from can have a great bearing on where you end up in life. But Jesus Christ changes all of that. He changes the course of people's lives and he can take you as far as you're willing to go regardless of your upbringing, your credentials, your past experiences or the expectations of others. I mean, it's wonderful to have a great upbringing, but that's not what defines you when you belong to Christ. When you're his, you're redefined by the author of life itself. In fact, all that you need to answer the call of Christ in your life is to be a disciple who makes disciples to go wherever the gospel leads you, no matter where that is. All that you need to do that is a willing heart. And so regardless of how experienced or inexperienced you are in ministry, regardless of where or by whom you were raised, regardless of your experience or lack of, regardless of what you've done or not done in your past, God is not looking for an impressive resume. He's looking for a willing heart. 
He used a stuttering 80-year-old man to lead an entire nation to freedom. Moses. He used a young boy with no battlefield experience to defeat Israel's greatest enemy. He used a prostitute to protect Joshua's men and ultimately bring victory to the people of Israel in the fall of Jericho. He used tax collectors and fishermen to change the world. And he used a murdering Pharisee bent on the destruction of the church to establish his church and to write much of the New Testament. See, when you follow Christ, your past has no voice in your future. God's more interested in your heart than he is in your resume. So stop worrying about what you have or haven't done, what you have or don't have, right? Just be willing to say yes to the call of Christ, to make disciples of Christ, and he'll use you to do just that in profound ways. God can do far more with your obedience than he can with your talent. He's more interested in your heart than he is in your resume. And look, it's great to have talents. It's great to have abilities and experience and to know what God created you to do and to go after it. But sometimes we can, and I'm talking uh, from the perspective of a professional minister, right? Sometimes we can become so confident in our talents and abilities and experience and knowledge and what we already have and have already done that we stop relying on the voice of the Holy Spirit to guide us and instead we just stick with what we know. When that happens, if you're not careful, you can become more passionate about your ministry than you are with the message. Okay, don't be afraid to go somewhere the gospel's leading you, even when it doesn't fit into your ministry model. He's more interested in your heart than he is your resume. So sometimes he'll lead you to people and places you don't feel qualified to go to or talk to. But listen, when your passion for the message is greater than your passion for the ministry model you're comfortable with, God will use you in ways you didn't even know were possible for you. The, the posture of the church, the state of the church in this part of the world has for too long been rooted in the idea that being a Christian means living a comfortable, prosperous, low-risk, high-reward life that ends with us being taken out of here before things get really hard. That is antithetical to everything Jesus taught and lived himself, including what he's showing us here in John's visions. And again, it matters the state of the church today matters because when the world is at its worst, we need to be at our best. One of my favorite quotes by Charles Spurgeon, I've read it to you often, he says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Let's finish our story for today, verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So the seventh trumpet is blown. And although another violent outpouring of God's wrath would be expected, instead there's a heavenly choir singing a hymn of praise, announcing the arrival of God's kingdom and the fact that he will once again dwell with his creation. 
So the 24 elders join in the celebration, falling down before God in worship as the time for rewarding his servants and pouring out his wrath on the destroyers of the earth has come. And of course, you can see the similarity to the opening of the seventh seal, where instead of another judgment, there was a holy silence for about a half an hour, and those around the throne worshiped God. And it says there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. That's back in Revelation 8.1, just as we see here in chapter 11, verse 19. Daniel predicted the day when the kingdom of God would utterly destroy the kingdoms of this world in Daniel 2, 31 through 45. Uh, Zechariah said the day is coming when God will be king over the whole earth in Zechariah 14, 9. So this is not only a vision given to John, it's also the fulfillment of the prophecies of old where God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. The ark, of course, uh, being a symbol of the abiding presence of God. Interestingly, by the way, uh, although most people believe that the Ark of the Covenant was destroyed when Nebuzaradan raised Jerusalem and burned the temple in 2 Kings 25, verses 8 through 10, there's actually a legend recorded in the ancient Jewish writing, 2 Maccabees uh, 2, 4 through 8, that says Jeremiah took the Ark and hid it in a cave on Mount Nebo where it was to remain hidden until, and I'm quoting, God finally gathers his people together and shows mercy to them, 2 Maccabees 2, 7. And so whether true or not, there was certainly a Jewish expectation of the recovery of the ark as an end times event with messianic implications as we see here, just as we see here in John's vision, namely the second coming of Christ, which ushers in the reign of Christ. And look, at the end of the day, that's what all of this is about. You understand, your journey, uh, your calling, your circumstances, your life, all of it is meant to point you and others back to Christ. Of course, we're blessed along the way. Of course, he meets our needs and in many ways gives us the desires of our hearts. Absolutely. But if you think for one second that the Spirit of God will never lead you into harm's way for the sake of Christ, then you're sorely mistaken. Because this journey that you're on as a Christian is ultimately not about you. It's about him. Which means at times in your life, if you're truly following Christ, he will lead you to places you don't want to go. And that's okay. Because your journey is meant to serve his interests far more than it serves yours. Uh, look, I don't think Paul wanted to be beaten any more than Jesus wanted to be crucified or John the Baptist wanted to be beheaded. And I don't think these Christians in our story in the last days wanted to be martyred. But sometimes the Spirit of Christ leads us into harm's way for His purposes, not ours. I'll be the first person to tell you I'm thankful that most of us will probably never be led into that depth of persecution, but that doesn't mean the Spirit won't lead you to places in your life at times that you don't particularly want to go. And it's in those very moments that you have to decide whether or not you're going to submit to the leading of the Spirit in your life or abandon the journey He has you on. Because sometimes He's going to lead you to love people who will never love you back. I guarantee it. Sometimes He's going to lead you to give far more than you want to give. Sometimes he's going to lead you to serve where you do not feel like serving. Sometimes he's going to lead you to risk what you never thought you'd have to. Sometimes he's going to lead you to sacrifice something you don't want to give up. Sometimes he's going to lead you to lay everything on the line for him, just like he did with these martyrs in John's vision. 
And in that moment, you're going to be confronted with the reality that this journey you're on is ultimately not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. That's how Paul was able to say, to live as Christ and to die as gain. I mean, can you see how the, the preaching of these martyrs under severe persecution, even how their deaths pointed people to Christ, people who undoubtedly came to Christ during that time and were raptured along with the rest of the church to heaven because of the willingness of believers to be at their best when the world around them was, was at its worst. I mean, what does that say about the state of the church then? What does it say about the state of the church today, right? Because that day we're talking about John's vision was in the future, right? That's what gets me so, so worked up in a good way about this book. We get to see the church at its best, and yet those days are not behind us. They're ahead of us. It gives me great hope. As hard as it is, it gives me great hope, great encouragement for the future that as difficult as the days ahead of us may become, Jesus is still building his church, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Leonard Ravenhill once said, you never have to advertise a fire. Everyone comes running when there's a fire. Likewise, if your church is on fire, you won't have to advertise it. The community will already know it. Is that the state of the church today? Is that the state of our church today? Maybe more to the point, is that the state of your own heart today? Let's pray.